Have you ever considered raving as an act of resistance? If so, how made you envision social justice unfolding on the dance floor? In our podcast series, we will relate these questions to club culture's response to current events and how this wave of momentum can be used to elevate new ways of raving and experiencing club music. Curated and brought to you by Transmission, aka Sarah Farina and Kerstin Meissner. Please join us exploring the politics of the dance floor, featuring a diverse range of figures from nightlife's global ecosystem. Please feel invited to share your ideas after each episode. You can get in touch via email or social media. Together we are trying to deconstruct in order to rebuild. And we are doing that in appreciation of one of our favorite spaces, the dance floor. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome everyone to this discussion as part of the Politics on the Dance Floor series organized by Transmission. This week's episode is going to be focusing on solidarity. I am your host. My name is Arkan Afan. I'm a London-born and raised curator and activist currently living in Berlin. I co-founded a collective here called Queer Arab Party focusing on curating social and political spaces for West Asian and North African queer and trans Arabs. I also work as a writer and I have an academic background exploring the accessibility of LGBT spaces for queer and trans identifying migrants and refugees, specifically having done my research in Berlin. Anyway, enough about me. Let me introduce you to my amazing guests. So we're going to start first with Yuko. Yuko, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes. Uh, hello, my name is Yuko Asanuma. And I was born in Japan. I lived in many different cities in Japan. And then I moved to Australia. I lived there for about seven years, went back to Japan and moved to Berlin about 10 years ago. Most of my adulthood, I've been involved in music scene or industry in some way. I've started Uh, writing about music, I made like a small fanzines uh, when I was a student. Then I became a music journalist. I worked a lot as an interview interpreter between Japanese and English. Then after I moved to Berlin, I got into booking uh, business because there were a lot of DJs in Berlin who wanted to play in Japan. So I booked a lot of mostly techno DJs from here playing in Japan. And recently I've been trying to book more Japanese artists to play in Europe. So I work as a booking agent slash artist management. Yeah, a lot of the times as well, uh, except right now uh, with COVID-19. <laughs> I have a lot of free time. <laughs> nice, thank you. And uh, Lakuti, our next guest. Yeah, hi, my name is Lorato and I was born and raised in Johannesburg, relocated to London in 97. I'm in Berlin for eight years now and I wear many different hats uh, as Yuko. My academic background is law, but that was not my choice, really. I'm an owner of an independent booking agency called Uzuri Bookings and Artist Management and been doing that since 2008. And I also founded Uzuri Recordings, which we've been running since 2007. Uh, yeah, DJ under the moniker, Lakuti, as I said. And I also curate and run events in London and sometimes in Berlin. 
and have curated nights in Spain and Portugal, South Africa. I've been doing that running night since I was 19. Nice, amazing. And our next guest, JJ, joining us on LiveLink right now. Hi, LiveLink in. I'm JJ. Listen to everybody else. I'm like, what do I do now? I do a lot. <laughs> I wear many hats. I kind of like seem to be like a figurehead for the ballroom scene in the UK. I've been in ballroom about five-ish years. I'm a part of the House of Revlon. I'm a DJ. I'm a dancer. I've taught a lot in Berlin. I've DJed a lot in Berlin as well and hosted events and stuff. I'm not posted as in like I put on, but someone else has asked me to host on the mic. So I do a lot of mic work. I've worked with people like Honey Dijon, Levi's, G Star, stuff like this. But I'm heavily involved in more essentially like community and community based person with my club nights I do in the UK and stuff like this. And yeah. Dance a very long time. So I'm really, I'm very ready to talk about dancing. <laughs> so, of course, then I guess we can all kind of uh, see the personal connections that we have to the dance floor in very different ways, but kind of within the same context. So I want to ask a question to you all. What do you think has resonated about the dance floor with you lately? Because... Of course, now it's almost become a bit of a concept. I can't even remember the last time I saw a dance floor. Like, my kitchen is my, my dance floor at the moment. <laughs> so what has resonated about the dance floor with you? I think the dance floor has changed for me being like, oh my God, I want to go to a club and like be with everyone and, you know, dance and be happy and whatever, or DJ mainly, to Zoom, like, they're not getting any money for this, but Zoom has been like a lifesaver essentially for myself in terms of connecting with other people on like a dance floor basis. Like I'm dancing from my living room, but I feel like I'm with like hundreds of people. It's actually quite weird. Like I had my birthday in lockdown. I just turned 28 in April. And it was so crazy that the next day, like I had like such a hangover because I felt like I was on like a night out. And I woke up and I was like, I literally felt like I was on a night out with everyone. Like, I felt like we all dancing together. We were, like, switching between screens. It felt like a party. And I think that's kind of what's changed for me is that I'm not too sure how much I can go back to the club aesthetic, except for being a DJ. Like, playing on the, I don't know, safer end of COVID, I feel like the Dex is a safer end. I just feel like I can... I don't know about being in that space on that spectrum of being like a, a punter, as they say in the UK. Yeah, but being a DJ, I'd be like, yeah, I'm so ready to play in clubs and la la la. But I'm not so ready to dance. Yeah, I can imagine that. And what about with you two? What about Yuko, Lakuti? Anything to add to that? I mean, for me personally, it's been a period of reflection and I've kind of taken myself out of, because I've been doing a lot of touring uh, prior to our lockdown here in Berlin. I'd just come back from Australia and India and then had to run to Paris. Then we were in lockdown. So it's been a period to rejuvenate myself because I feel like I need strength to face on what we have to deal with in the world right now. And, uh, and yeah, I've used a lot of the time to kind of also look into my own collection because, I mean, I'm not... 20, so I have a lot of uh, uh, a big record collection. And sometimes you not having time does not allow for you to really dig deeper into that. And I'm, I'm trying to go deeper into my collection again. And that's been fun. 
And I have been asked to do a lot of these kind of uh, Zoom or Twitch things. But at the moment, within my reflection, I do not feel able to be standing and putting myself in front of people. I'm kind of actually finding myself more and more distant, you know. And I guess that's my way of finding my own safe space within the madness win. But yeah, I've been enjoying, I've done a couple of podcasts. I have a stream coming up this weekend for New York Pride. And that's been fun to do because I've rediscovered a lot of stuff that I haven't played for a long time. So finding strength in that. But otherwise, it's it's a moment of reflection. I have a similar feeling to uh, the Rato's. I've been spending my weekend in clubs for the past, I don't know, over 20 years. <laughs> Most of my weekends in clubs. The last few years I've been a little bit quiet because, I don't know, I guess I was quite busy and to be honest, I was getting a little bit bored of going to the same clubs and, you know, listening to and dancing to similar music. And after the lockdown, strangely, I don't have that much craving for the the physical dance floor. And especially I have no cravings for DJ live streaming. Everyone enjoys, you know, DJ performance in different ways. So I'm not like trying to criticize anyone. But when I look at myself, I just don't enjoy watching DJs on screen at home on my own or even with a couple of friends. And that made me realize how important the physical space is and how Zoom or, you know, video streaming doesn't doesn't replace the, the experience. I get that. I think for me personally, like when the clubs were open and I used to go out, I would never, ever focus on the music in the space that I would go to. I would focus on the people who were there. And obviously, most of the time, the people who are there are the ones who are attracted to the music. And... I don't know, like I, I, I wouldn't even really spend that much time on the actual dance floor. I would be in the smoking areas or I would just be like at the bar talking to people. And now with the lockdown and listening to uh, DJ sets on live stream, I've actually started to appreciate the music so much more because, you know, I'm not a DJ. That, so coming to that environment and, and having that, it's, it's been really good to, to have that. So I think leading on from that, it would be really interesting to see what the songs we've chosen to have in this discussion and what that means for all of us. So, Yuko, we're going to start with your song if you want to give us a little uh, explanation as to what it means for you. This is just one of many favorite songs because I've been really overwhelmed by um, what's going on in the United States lately, the past couple of weeks. And I have a lot of so-called black music records. I, I look at my record shelves and most of the records I have are made by black artists. And this is one of them. And after like experiencing and seeing all these protests and what the protests expose to the world, I really started to listen to these songs differently. And it's one of those songs and it's called The Bottle by Gil Scott Heron. You see that black boy over there running scared, his old man in a bottle. He done quit his nine to five, he drank full time, and now he's living in a bottle. 
start talking about the topic of solidarity right we're gonna get into it because that's why we're all here so let's start with how we'd want to define solidarity when you hear the term solidarity what definition comes to mind for you and on top of that what do you think it means to you personally to think about solidarity so think about the question objectively at first like what solidarity is seen to be and then think about how maybe you would apply solidarity into your life and the dance floor and your experiences with the dance floor for me solidarity is having a sense of awareness and empathy and a psychological sense of unity between different groups or classes, you know, it refers to society coming together in a meaningful way that is equalizing this for everybody rather than elevating one or the other, you know. And do you see that with your experiences on the dance floor? Do you see solidarity enacted like that throughout your career? I think in many ways we've lost that sense of solidarity because we've uh, focused a lot on consuming rather than uh, reflecting and having the understanding of where things come from, why they are there, how do they become what they are. We've kind of lost a sense of direction in where we're going, I strongly feel. And uh, going out is just become one-dimensional instead of layered you know we go out to consume rather than we go out to contribute and to feel at one with others you know i think that's a really good point about consumption over contribution because it just shows like a lack of collective awareness that people have and the fact that they want to prioritize themselves as an individual rather than as part of something larger and jj what do you think about that out of my head i literally cannot Stop thinking about performative allyship. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, every time I hear someone say like, oh, I'm with you, oh, we're here, we're in this together, oh, so that's, it's always from like, for me, some a performative situation. I'm always about like, build what you can't see. So for me, like the boom scene in the beginning in the UK, for example, was very white and you know is what it is to be honest it came to the uk as like a dance style it didn't come to as, as a community but for me i didn't like it so i kind of just did my own thing or oh, what was the history of new york and like implement that in the uk and for me that kind of brought people together where solidarity is seen and there was a shooting in orlando i think it was four years now ago at pulse and this is the second thing that comes to mind is that when that happened, I was in Sheffield on a bus back 
from a gig that I did to showcase this new uh, ballroom documentary by a guy called Twiggy Garçon called Kiki. Had to get that in there. And when I was coming back, I started seeing like the numbers of the deaths go up and up and up and up. And literally the next day I had to teach. I was teaching for a gym at the time. And I was teaching and it was fun and whatever, but there was still a burning thing in my heart that was like, something's gone wrong and I don't feel okay. So I went to Soho and I got called a couple of like Vogas. I called a lot of people. I was like, hey, let's go do this. I was like, let's go to Soho and let's Vogue in the name of these people. It's something that is done in the culture for a very long time. And to be honest, from that, it was like a big blow up. It went on Time Out. It got like over a million views, all these articles and writing things. And... The main word they kept using is solidarity. Like how we use dance in the street, going back to the streets in Borum and dancing in the streets of Soho, reclaiming in solitude with each other, LGBT, bringing everyone together. So these are like the two things. I feel like separation, I feel like it's performative, which I which is irritating. And people feel like they're being there in solitude with like us, like I, I'm talking POC people, like black people by just, you know, you know, posting a black square and stuff like this. But there's other people out there that doing the work and are talking up and I don't know, I feel like there's not much solidarity for people who do the work and are in the backgrounds. <laughs> but the ones that scream a lot, a little bit, don't know. I'm conflicted by it because, you know, it brought my community that I have today, but at the same time I think nowadays I'm more irritated because I feel like solidarity is a word that's used as a performative ally perspective. Yeah, just to add to what you're saying, because I think a lot of people do not realise the power in words. I find that words have become reduced to nothingness at some point, you know, and there's uh, words that are in vogue for that particular era and then they thrown out but I'm like do you realize the power in this word that you are using so carelessly without any thought and another thing that I wanted to bring to the fore is that a lot of people don't realize that actually solidarity means that you are committing yourself to doing the work there is work involved it's not just saying a word and uh, and things magically change you know you have to commit to doing the work. For sure. Yeah, and I think that solidarity is an, inherently, it's an uncomfortable experience. To be in solidarity with someone is to feel the discomfort of being aware of your proximity to the privileges or the lack of privileges or however you place yourself. And I think that these things such as the black square for the hashtag Black Lives Matter movement, this is, it's very transactional because it allows for a person to not feel uncomfortable anymore because... At the end of the day, throughout everything that's been going on and with the protests that have sparked again and continued in North America, I, as a non-black person of color, have felt so uncomfortable and felt so conscious of my positionality and so conscious of how my community as a West Asian, for example, can perpetuate that anti-blackness. And, and I know that just saying that I'm in solidarity and talking about being a person of color, it's not enough because that's just allowing for me to sleep better rather than actually thinking about those power dynamics that I could change within my communities. And I think one of the ways in which I've tried to focus on that is with language, because especially for the Turkish speaking community in Berlin, which is a big community where I'm based, um, a lot of people don't have access to that information because they don't keep up with the German or the English media. And so solidarity maybe comes in the form of making things accessible, making language accessible, understanding those power dynamics. So, JJ, you said that you wanted to say something about the Black Square thing. 
the black square was supposed to be people who worked in the music industry could take that day off to do just black themselves out of all of that and you know a sense of that came from like obviously intention and that was done but the whole thing about being in solitude that made that black square become this whole bigger situation that it wasn't in, originally intended to be and it's crazy because then what happens is like music labels will pick up on it and then actually say oh actually well what they could do is say oh actually everyone gets a day off that day and that kind of takes away the power of what was supposed to happen. Yuko, what do you think about that? I don't know if i adding anything extra to what you guys have already said. My understanding of the word changed quite a lot in the past, say, three weeks. Originally, I understood the word solidarity means to relate yourself to other people's issues, what, what's issues that seem to be other people's and make it your issue, you know, to relate yourself to the issue so that you internalize the issue as something of your own, and which is not wrong. But then in, in the past few weeks, as JJ mentioned about the performative allyship, which is the term that I didn't know before. And when I found the term, I was like, yes, you know, this is the term that I knew what it was, but didn't know how to explain. And to understand that term and then going back to the word solidarity, I realized that solidarity requires participation. You have to do something. And it's not just something that you show as a Facebook post or Instagram post. It can't be just a black square. You have to acknowledge the issue and you have to internalize it. And then what, what do you do about it? Going back quickly to this black square scenario, when it came out, immediately I saw it as being a problem. And I think it's very typical of the music industry to not address what it perpetuates on the daily, but rather, again, to do kind of performative kind of things that are not based on, on anything really. And I think for too long as an industry, we have been refusing to address a lot of things. And for me, this black square just heightened all those things that I have been feeling within the industry. And this idea of utopia, which my generation coming into electronic music and dance music, I think we naively thought that we could forget about the differences and just embrace the fact that we could be in these spaces together and have like freedom for two hours, three hours. But I think given what we're going through and have been going through without addressing for a long time, we also need to rethink about the idea of utopia because it doesn't exist, period, and it will never exist. And we need to start dealing with reality. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the song that you chose as well before we start listening to it? Yeah, it's a song by Kajama, who is a brilliant South African young artist. And I've been reconnecting with my country in the last seven years, because as I said, I left because I needed to find myself and leave the country and its legacy behind. And uh, uh, in the last seven years, I've been going back every year, connecting with different crews, putting on nights myself. 
This song is kind of home. It kind of gives me the feeling of home, which is a feeling that I'm missing right now. And those questions of belonging and home are very present for me right now. And yeah, that's the reason why I chose this song, because I, I feel a deep connection with a new generation in South Africa right now. And I wanted to support them by also putting out the music out there to the whole world. Hopefully people pick up on it. Ashes to Ashes by Kajama. Next, we're going to go to talking more deeply about the dance floor as a solidarity space. And I want to start thinking about the politics of the space and the role it plays. Because I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was having one of my seasonal Facebook arguments with someone. And they basically said that we should keep all politics out of the dance floor. There's nothing political about the dance floor at all. The people should just go there. Hashtag good vibes only. And I was just like, I wanted to reach through the phone. and But obviously I didn't and I couldn't. So I want to explore that a bit more. Tell me what you think the role of politics is on the dance floor. Politics play a big role on the dance floor. I mean, capital excess money determines who gets to, you know, shape what goes on at the dance floor and who gets to enjoy what goes on on the dance floor. So it is political. <laughs> so it's I think um, politics has a big role in the sense that for a lot of us, we feel empowered when we're on the dance floor. Like I've spoken to this about with so many friends, as a gender non-conforming person, being on the dance floor allows me to feel comfortable in my gender identity. It's kind of one of those places where my dysphoria kind of just goes into the back of my head because I'm there, I f I'm feeling cunty, I feel fabulous, I look good, I'm with all of my friends, I'm listening to good music and, and we're occupying space and we're in this space which we know the history is rooted in LGBT history and black history and, and brown history and we fought for these spaces. Exactly. We fought for these spaces. We did and I think that's really important within the context of what you do JJ because obviously like you said before Ballroom has a big legacy and if you could tell us a bit more about how political you think that legacy is that would be great. Uh, legacy's been political from the jump really. If we go back to like you know the underground drag scene. There's so many documentaries you can obviously watch about it. If you talk about like underground drag scene, from that, from the iconic like Crystal Obeja, like I know I'm beautiful to that situation, to Borum like forming out of that, it's really a lot to do with politics. It's a lot to do with like you know homophobia, racism, all of that stuff that 
obviously works into politics about like you know about like the UK taking away like people like soft, like soft gendering and stuff like this. Like Borum plays a big part because Borum is all about how you fit into those into that space. So like realness for one category, people might see, oh my god, he looks so straight, he's so buff, blah blah blah. But that whole category realness is like a stance. Like in Borum, there's executive realness. And what Paris's burden doesn't show you is people actually worked on like Wall Street in America. When they walked executive realness, they would bring out the company credit card, they bring out the company phone book, they're in there, they're like, I am in this, I'm here. Like I stand in the city. And people, as you see in like video surface, Bournemouth does have a lot of political, like, I don't know, movement, I would say. I'm now breaking it down in my like university dance way which is like to fight back at society to fight to have a space you know to fight for your rights to fight for black trans people everywhere in politics within ballroom which in the history it doesn't see people who are gender non-conforming like that's the thing that non-binary people in ballroom is like oh what do we do is what people say there's constant arguments about it and I have people who are gender non-conforming in my house who are, like, trans-masculine, X, Y, Z. And even within that, like, the politics that happen within Borough, there's, like, political conversations. There's conversations at the roundtable about, you know, people's gender within Borough and how does that work. I just feel like it works. Borough kind of works how, I don't know, the government works, essentially. And there's always, like, one... There's always, like, one person that feels this and, like, a hundred people will come back and say, no, that's not okay. And it rolls over. In Borum in the US, they have, like, House Lives Matter, which looks at, like, the health and safety of people within the community. Borum kind of works like a country in itself. (laughs) Like, it kind of, like, works as a small country in itself. It's not that small, but a small country that works within the world. Because Borum is now everywhere. Like, it exists in every single country. I don't think there's a country where it doesn't exist, in all honesty. I don't think there is. The political side of it comes within... I think the best videos to show is, like, there's a line of police officers. You can find it, but there's a line of police officers, and there's a... I think she's drag, or she's a trans woman. I'm not sure, but she fucking carried. She used her movement to not attack, but say something to the police. Like, you're shooting. Like, she picked up a gun and she, like, shot everyone and then she dipped. That conversation says, like, and that's emotional. But that's kind of saying, like, look at all of you standing here. You're killing us. Full stop. The dip is a full stop in most conversations. I'm boring. I've watched that video so many times and it speaks like, ridiculous volumes. In terms of, like, when people say, in ballroom, you're always having a conversation when you move. This, I heard, I heard every word through a video. In ballroom, like, this is the bits. It's those bits. It's taking back, like, Soho. It's taking back spaces. It's going to, like, straight spaces and taking that and making that queer and making that your own. I think there's a lot of political, like, movement within it, not only just health and benefits of the people that are serving the community or in the community, but it has a lot to do with the conversations we also have. So, yeah, Boron kind of is like its little own country throughout the world that has its own political views on loads of stuff. I think the country point is amazing because I think it is this space which creates space. 
I think having that placemaking is so important because we always find ourselves in another person's house. But we never find ourselves kind of within our own house, within our own environment, surrounded by our own furniture. It's almost like we're always renting, we're never owning. And I think that's what's so great about Ballroom is that you might be, for example, in a, a theatre, but the theatre isn't important. It's the people who are in that who are creating a space within that theatre, right? And and people see that and then they become more political. People who have stepped their toe in ballroom, a place where it's superly accepted, are now talking out and now talking against the government for many reasons. I, I think um, the placemaking thing is really important within journalism as well, because we need to make sure that we take up space, not just physically, but also discursively, like within the conversations that we have and, and how we, what attention we draw through the words that we write and the interviews that we speak. So Yuka, how do you feel that music journalism, for example, has played that role in also creating or representing the political context of a dance floor? I don't know if I can answer that question from my position, but maybe it's a generational thing. But as I mentioned, I've been around for, you know, a bit longer than uh, you guys. I, I'm, a, I'm a music nerd. I kind of ended up going to parties because I like the music. So it's, it's quite different. It's like the opposite of your experience. So it didn't matter so much who's in there, but I wanted to hear this DJ or... I wanted to hear this type of music. But even as a music nerd, if you really want to know about it, you would want to learn the context of where the music comes from. And I feel like I did spend quite a lot of time learning where this culture came from. I feel like there were a lot of resources available as well. There were music magazines that everyone was reading and that provided kind of basic history of the club culture, for example. And so I feel like my generation of ravers, if they still rave, they at least know the basic knowledge of where the culture is from. But when I see on social media or younger kind of, yeah, party goers, they're so detached from where it's from. And I think anyone who goes to parties or nightclubs or music festivals can agree that they feel more freedom when they're in that space. And, but they don't know why. And they don't even try to know why. And if you're coming to these things and if you're taking part in these spaces, the bottom line is that you need to know that this freedom was created by someone else. People fought for this freedom. And if you think you don't need to talk politics on the dance floor, you're just ignoring, you're just denying that fact. And you're just only proving that you're privileged to even acknowledge the struggles of people in the past who created this freedom for you. I mean, I didn't talk much about journalism, but I think there's a lot of responsibility in music platforms, publications. I think they need to continue to provide this basic education accessible to even to casual partygoers um, in the way they can understand and in a form that's somehow accessible to them. Do you think that there are platforms or contexts in which that happens or do you feel like that's yet something that is to be seen 
I personally don't have like a go-to platform for this kind of things, but in, in the past few weeks, I find social media actually very educating to me. For example, even examples of like big music institution or cultural institutions posting solidarity comment and seeing it being criticized by so many people and reading the criticisms it's like a real-time lesson. And if you pay attention, there, there are a lot of things you can learn from. I just wanted to touch back on creating spaces because I used to do parties in London for 11 years. And we started off in a traditional club, which was already set up. But I soon found out that that was not my space because somebody was already defining the space in also the security that were there. And we decided to do parties that were not legal <laughs> at that time. And because I felt that I needed a blank canvas and I can then layer that canvas and I w could be able to talk to security to say to them, you are, this is this kind of party. We have queer people. We have this kind of people. We have black people. Mm. And these are my terms for you being here. And I think these things are really important, especially in this current juncture, uh, that clubs need to re-communicate these things to everybody that's within that space, that if we say we want to change, it needs to infiltrate in every sphere of the space itself, yeah. I think going back to this, the illegal raves you were talking about. So this leads really well to the next question that I want to ask you guys, which is, so bit of backstory. When I was in my teens in London and I didn't have an ID to get into the clubs until I was like 17 and I found an ID and went to Fabric for the first time. Apart from all those like under 18 raves, which I started with, I would go to loads of squat parties and free parties in, in Hackneywick, especially. So there's this particular pub. I don't know if you know it. It's like right next to where Hackneywick station is now. And it was like a disused former pub. I can't remember the name of it. And um, like Hackneywick was a space where you'd always go and find a free party. And for me, for example, I know that that was a space which I wouldn't feel policed in because I wouldn't have to worry about, they wouldn't have to worry about licensing and all of that stuff. Now, 10 years down the line in my mid twenties, I go to that same neighborhood and all of those spaces are privatized buildings with like carefully curated, crafted parties with, the, with bouncers and book DJs and whatever. So obviously it's just become intensely gentrified and I've watched that basically just happen in front of me my whole life. So I wanna ask you guys this question then, which is how have you experienced gentrification within your communities of nightlife and more importantly as well how do you think we can protect from this and specifically how can we protect from hegemonic consumption which is how can we fight against the capitalization or the exploitation or the commercialization or all the isations of our community how can we fight against that with more and more spaces like shutting down it's so much harder to find a space that is for you by you it's so hard because there's also, again, like what you're saying about security guards, like you, you used to say like, this is the party, these are the people, you are a visitor, you're here to protect us, you're not here to be against us. And this is literally, the words you are saying is exactly what I say before every single ball, before every single party, I speak to security, I introduce myself, I do everything to make sure they know like, I am the HBIC 
if you don't know, so everyone needs to look at Tiffany Pollard. I am the HBIC. You are here to help my party go smoothly and there's no beef. Because back in the day when you used to look at beef and security, they used to just throw people out or split it and that's it. Nowadays, there's a whole like back room, back door situation I hear too much of. I don't know, like it's just become so much more harder to secure a space in through gentrification because also another annoying thing is that everyone feels like they can come. I have a question to you though about this whole security guard thing because I have been at spaces where you've had to police the crowd as if you're a security guard yourself. Like I remember we were at a Kiki function last summer actually in Berlin and it was the sex siren category and it's just like commonly known that sex siren, you don't have your phones out, you don't record that. Context. Sex and category is about selling sex. It's selling your body as it is. It's being comfortable in who you are and how you look. It's about supporting and glorifying and clapping you on. And it's just about being like super sexy and knowing that you're sexy. And it's a new thing where people don't want it to be filmed. To be honest, in the US, you can set sex siren. You will see, and I'll be very honest, you will see dicks, you'll see tillies, you'll see everything exposed. They don't care. And these videos have been up for years. Only now they're getting, they're getting taken down for nudity and all this other policing around YouTube. Like, this whole attitude of, like, it not being filmed, I understand. Because people's parents might not want to see that. With the amazingness of the internet and Instagram, things can go viral. And, you know, you don't want your parents to see that. So now they don't film it. So this particular event that I was in Berlin for, I was already tired <laughs> because I had like a cruise for five days so I did an intense filming and I came and I was like ready to be in Berlin see all my girls all my, and be like in the fun but people don't understand like when someone says don't do something just don't do it it's not hard do not film you decide to film so then if I throw the microphone what are you going to say it's exactly what I said if I throw my microphone at you what are you going to say as like anyone you see film, slap them in the head. Because these places where it's supposed to be a safe space, it cannot happen. It's the same with like, there's a party called Harpies that happens in the UK. It's like the first LGBT strip club. I was like able to play there and I had a great time. But I found myself like policing the shit out of this party because someone was performing and the boy had his phone out. I just had to take the ice out of my drink and throw it at his head. Because it's so packed, security is like, oh, I can't get there, la, la, la. But I missed the times where there was literally no phones. <laughs> and I had a 3310. Because even in balls, people film and they want a hashtag and stuff. And do you know what? I, not profit on it, but I use it to my ability. Like, I'll make a hashtag for my ball. I look for the content after. Do you know why? Because I don't film them. I honestly refuse to film my balls. I refuse for it to be like, a 50 million people looking at this on YouTube and stuff like this. I don't know, with gentrification, you have to be very careful about how you protect your space. I think I personally know who comes through the door. My mum's on the door and she's the person you greet. You're in my home, essentially, no matter what the space looks like. And you have to respect my rules. And that is just the end. Like, I've stopped using venues because of security. I will refuse people's entry. I won't give you your money back, but I will tell you to leave because you have disrespected the space. Like, I do not mind having these conversations. I think everyone just has to just not be so nice about what they want because sometimes you just have to say it bluntly and people will listen instead of it making it really nice. And I think that, for me, is where gentrification comes into it, is where people don't want to listen. Like, 
I had a woman outside my party. My last party, I had a woman outside my party for context is that outside Dawson Superstore, Dawson Superstore is the only LGBT venue in East London. And it caters only for LGBT. And they asked you at the door, are you LGBT? And this woman went in the queue because she couldn't get in, because she knew no one in there. She was like, oh, I've lived here my, I've lived here for like, you know, five years and I should be able to come in. Like, what do you mean? Just because I'm there, like I'm a straight white woman. Blah, blah, blah. And then I was like, no, it's because like, they sorted it and was like, no, it's because like, this is LGBT. We have to keep it LGBT. And she went up the queue to tell everyone not to go in. Like that shows you like gentrification. At its, it's feeling like you can control that space, right? It's feeling like you're you're the one who has the right to say who is allowed to get in and out of that space. I want to ask you two, um, Yuko and Lakuti, how have you experienced this within a non-London context? So think about it in all the spaces that you've played internationally. How have you seen that gentrification in the spaces you visited in cities that aren't maybe as heavily commercialised like London or like Berlin, but even in other places? Looking back at South Africa, for example, we had a fertile, loving landscape back in the early 90s. That kind of disappeared in the latter part of the 90s, in a way, and it became difficult for free spaces to be available to people. And downtown was where all the best clubs were. And downtown became abandoned because after 94, a lot of rich White people were scared to be in the center of town and they ran away. So that became kind of like a ghost town. So clubs were moving into the richer suburbs of the city in shopping malls, which makes zero sense. And even up to now, we haven't fully recovered from how the clubbing landscape moved from the center where it was accessible for black people to be there to the richer northern suburbs of the city. And yeah, we haven't recovered from how things develop up to now, yeah. Right. And uh, Yuko, as a booker, especially when you bring artists from Germany to Japan, how do you see that narrative of gentrification travel overseas, for example? Well, before I get into that, I position myself when it comes to the argument of gentrification because I moved to Berlin 10 years ago because, of course, Berlin was, you know, exciting. There were a lot of great parties, good music, but primarily because it was cheap. It was so much cheaper to live in Berlin than to live in Tokyo. So I'm aware that I'm responsible for the gentrification that's going in Berlin, which I feel like accelerating. I didn't really recognize it for the first few years, but after some years, you suddenly realize, oh, what happened to that building that was here before? You see so many changes and you see that things that made Berlin interesting were gone and all of them becoming, I don't know, new boring buildings and shopping malls. And I never be on the side to blame gentrification because I'm aware that I'm contributing in it. And especially as a booking agent, I've only been working extensively as a booking agent only the past two years. But I realized when you're booking gigs for DJs and if the DJ plays you know, two gigs every weekend, and you're constantly talking to different promoters, 
you can't really pay attention to what kind of parties they are. I mean, some people are more, especially when they're very passionate promoters, they would write like a long proposal email explaining what they do and how they don't do it for profit and etc. But it's very difficult as a booking agent or as an artist to decide which gig to play, especially when you become more successful. It's very difficult to pay attention to all the details and the ideals of these promoters. And the fact that this industry has become so much bigger and structured is accelerating the, the yeah, drive of gentrification in the business in general. Yeah, interesting. And I think how, for example, have we been facing with how gentrification is this huge pandemic globally, but now it's not the only pandemic which we have, right? Because we have coronavirus and this is something that has drastically affected communities collectively, individually, societally, in every single context. So I want to ask about how vulnerable our scene is to this virus as well. And what has this pandemic specifically highlighted for us? What, for example, can and should we learn and how can we change things for the better? So quite a loaded question, of course, but, you know, where to start? Well, I mean, what for me has been very clear for a long time and this pandemic has just accelerated that kind of situation is that we have been building upon something with zero foundations and we've lost our way, we've lost the meaning of what we do because we've prioritized commercialization over community over building a culture, over legacy, you know. And uh, now it's a time that we need to do a lot of reflection and to see whether we want to go this way in terms of feeding the community. And look, I'm not saying that people should not earn money with their craft. I'm not subscribing to that thought at all, but there are ethical ways of earning money. And right now, where we lost our way within the recording industry and clubbing at large is that, yeah, we prioritized only making money and everything else was thrown to the back burner. So where do we go from here? It's up to everybody. JJ, you were nodding in agreement. What do you think? Two things that come into my head is like, we're going to be the last to open. Our culture in terms of like, nights, venues, festivals, stuff like, like we're going to be the last. And the last might not be like, I know if people are starting to plan, like I'm getting emails saying, hey, we reworked um, our schedule with the new COVID rules. Are you able to come do this? And I'm kind of like, I'm saying yes to everything, but I'm like, we're going to be the last to open. If anyone wants to cancel anything, they'll cancel festivals and all this stuff first. I think that's where we have to also see the value in technology like the technology that we have, like, I'm in agreement. I can't really watch someone do a live stream of a performance. I found it very weird, even when I DJ Boiler Room, that people were watching me online. I find it weird because I teach voting classes online, and that's literally only happened out of COVID. I'm not really into the teaching online. I'm about physical energies and stuff like this. But technology, it plays a big part. Like, like moving what we can do in the club space to online is, like, 
I think how we can, there's a sense of saving our community. I was going to play so many festivals, have my own brunch party for Pride. And all of this was like financially amazing for me. But as soon as it all got taken away, I was like, fuck, but we've got the internet. Why can't we just not do the same thing and just move it online? Um, even though I feel like online is weird. And I think those are two things is that we're going to have to start using technology to make our shit happen because the fact that we don't have the physical spaces due to pandemic, I'm going to be the last to open. Like, they're opening pubs before they open, like, actual venues. That's beyond me. But that's how I personally feel, is that we have this accessibility of, like, the internet and the technology we have that could be really good. But also, yeah, we do think a lot in agreements, like, making money, and that's also on venues as well, because venues make us make the bar plus whatever, or make us pay high fees for venues for certain days and stuff like this. I think that all comes into play, and we just have to see how we can utilise what we have, but not also taken away from what we're already doing. I saw you disagreeing with a bit of that, Lakutu. For me, I find it difficult because in kind of uh, looking at online as an alternative in that sense, because for me, clubbing means something completely different. It means the idea of touch, which we can't do now, obviously, yeah. I'm looking at how many streams we have right now and not having a filter. I mean, it's literally millions of people streaming. How are people taking all this too much information in? There is way too much information, I feel, and I'm not sure that we can process so much information. Right now, we need to go to back to basics. Less is more. Reflection, time, space, less. I don't know. Those are my feelings. I just feel like the internet opens up too much and with no filter. What are we really learning? What are we doing? What do you think about this, Yuka? I generally agree with Lerato because, as I said before, I much appreciate the physical space and it's hard for me to enjoy DJ live streaming. But at the same time, I, I do get requests for my artists to do free mixes. Oh, can, can you know, such and such artists do a mix for our cancelled festival? And of course, we want to support each other. But you guys need to realize that the artist has also lost the source of income and they can't keep providing unpaid work. So internet, you know, has great advantage. And I see it as a good way to keep in touch with your community. But it's difficult to, I don't like the word, but monetize from what you do online. So, yeah, I don't have an answer for it, but we definitely need a way to compensate the artists and the workers in the industry. Okay. So I think we're going to go into our third song, which is my song. Not as in I didn't make this song, I wish I'd made this song, honestly. But it's by Shy Girl, who's an artist from London. And it's produced by Sega Bodega. And it's called Uckers. And yeah, hope you enjoy it. I really just be for the sake of fucking niggas 
Did I forget to mention that I'm coming for you, nigga? No place to run, but you weren't you for that. Let's be bitches in the back, in the front. Even when you're forced asleep, I'd be running on your mind. But to me, you're just a beat. I don't give a fuck about you, but I really keep on fucking till I back all of you, nigga. I don't give a fuck about you, but I really keep on fucking till I back all of you, niggas. I forget to say that you don't get to fuck for free. You can fuck with other bitches, but you still run back to me. I got the soul to strain for see I'm collecting triple P. I want your mind and your body when I'm wearing up to me. So the reason I chose this song is just to do a shout out to PDA, which is an amazing night that happened in London. I was even talking about this earlier, just about how it was a really nice positive space filled with black and brown queer people. And yeah, so I just wanted to spotlight artists from there. So the next final wrap up conversation that we're going to have is going to be focusing on the future, planning and our wishes. So I want to start by asking you all, how do you think people can show solidarity and be part of protecting and supporting underground culture? For me, I personally feel like that whole thing is like, regardless if it's going to be guest mix or this or that, X, Y, Z, people should be paid for their time and paid for what they're doing. I think a big thing for me that I advocate, like, it's not all about making money. And I feel like you should always be happy and money will come, even though if you turn the job down, money will come in another place. If, you know, in your heart, you don't feel comfortable. But I think a big thing for me is, like, noticing what the pandemic has brought is a lot of people asking a lot for free or for much less because they think you're at home and it's just online, it's just this. You just need to take a couple hours of your time just for us, for this tiny fee or nothing. And for me, even when I was super accessible in London to not being so accessible now because I obviously live in Barcelona, that was a big thing for me that I couldn't understand that just because I'm there or just because I'm home or just because it's COVID, I should be doing stuff for free or be grateful for opportunities because COVID is here and we don't know when the next coin is going to come. I think a big thing for me is that people get paid for their time regardless, especially because everyone has bills to pay. And yeah, and being very 100, you know, with the situation is something non-profit or are you making profit from this? I just know I've gone through life knowing people will say something to my face and then there'll be loopholes somewhere. You know, I've done stuff with brands and they've used my image for to sell products and they never said that to me. And you, know, you have to go back and forth with them and be like, I'm going to sue and all this. It shouldn't ever get to that. I think moving forward, that shows a lot. Like just being honest, clear, pay people for their time. I think that makes everyone live in harmony. I, I think that's a good point in terms of like the commercial aspect of things. But I also think this discussion is important to have within community because... I remember having this conversation with someone where they were saying they wanted to do their birthday party at the third party we held for Queer Out of Party, which was in February. And in fact, we had like a couple of press outlets based in Europe who wanted to bring a camera and come and record at our party. And they thought because we're a POC run collective that we would be so gratuitous and so happy to have a camera crew come to our party. And I was thinking in my head, we're 
a party for people from a diaspora which doesn't necessarily have the comfort of being visible or wanting to be visible because we don't control that narrative of visibility, right? And you think that we're just going to be happy to come to the party, have you come to the party because it means visibility or credibility. But that also made me think about queer safaris, right? We feel, I feel so many times that we're like a safari or like a theme park for people to come and explore and see what our spaces are and what we do. So how do we prevent that? How do we stop people from coming into our space and taking from it and seeing us like we're just an exhibition in like, you know, like on a pedestal for them and then going home while we have to cover the cost of the club and cover the cost of the security and the party? What do you think? I feel in a lot of ways, I mean, which is a phenomenon that I often see now is, I guess, it's a younger generation that have embraced kind of branding and brands in a way that we didn't do. And therefore, I think that's a conversation that needs to happen within that generation to see what they are actually giving up by signing on to relying on a brand to kind of uh, showcase who you are, you know, because, I mean, I, I would say there's value to being independent. And I think we really need to start to stress how important it is to own your own narrative. Because uh, when you sign up with brands, you actually are giving away your content. You no longer own your content. Is this what we want? What do you think about this, Yuka? It's a very difficult question that I always ask myself too. I've worked with brands and I work with branded projects many times in the past. And it's partly because these brands do have a lot of resources, a lot of financial abilities that all us independent workers don't have, will ne ever have. And on one hand, I've kind of tried to contribute it in these projects because I wanted to help them redistribute the resources to the underground community. But at the same time, you are giving away something. Even for a good price, you're allowing them to put price tag on what you do. It's not a good price, I feel, at the end of the day. you losing a lot from this. And yeah, I can never deny, because a lot of people of color, black kids, have had to rely on these brands to get any exposure and to get paid. And I will never take that away from people, but there's a bigger picture, and that picture worries me. Because uh, for me, I think there's a bigger price to pay, and we need to teach younger people that we need to own our stuff. You know, we are in a loop as black people because we do not own our things. And uh, we're having to always renegotiate to be put at the table. And uh, we just need to start. It's time that we own stuff because I think we can do a lot more for our communities if we own our own stuff. And it's true. I mean, in two senses, it's like, yeah, own your stuff is very key. And owning 
okay, let's say brands, because it's true what you're saying, like parties nowadays are built on the brand and your ethos and your mission statement and stuff like this. But you know, it's like some brands do align and sometimes it does work, you know? I The boiler room I did didn't feel so much like a boiler room because of, it was with, um, not the online bit, but in the party, it was with a drag queen called Lagoon Femme Shema, uh, Prestige Pack. And they did this whole thing with Boiler Room for Carnival with Prestige Pack. And I got to DJ and it was really amazing. And I met new DJs and it was really great. And there was like an inverse of like Burberry, but it wasn't like plastered everywhere. It felt very much like Carnival. It had all these other brands like put money into it, but it didn't feel like that. And I feel like that was like one of the, probably the first times working, someone asked me to play or be involved in something that I didn't feel a lot of brand presence. And I think that's something that I don't mind aligning with brands as long as, you know, the money's right, as well as you don't take up too much space. And you understand, like, there's power in owning your stuff because there's power in, like, when you have conversations like this, either within your own community or it being commercialised, you have the power, because you own it, you have the power to say yes and no to stuff. And most times, in my experience, like, I've worked with brands and said, no, that cannot happen. No, you cannot come to a ball and film. No, you can't talk to my mom. I'm so sorry. No, you're not going to be filming people in the back, dressing up or whatever you want to call it or getting ready. And some will say yes. And some will say, well, we can't work with you then. And so be it, is my opinion on that. But it's true. Owning your stuff and allowing it to align are such two things that... You guys have said this has been amazing. Finishing off with you, Lukuti, before we move to the next question. Yeah, I mean, I'm just interjecting when you said, yeah, you felt good and it didn't feel like, but I mean, I think that's, it's not the key point here because for me, also a lot of the people that actually are behind these brands is something that we need to scrutinize because so many times we invest in people that work against our own interests. It's really become so dangerous and, and so scary to see the impact of these people within our own communities. And we really need to be vigilant in actually scrutinizing what we're signing up to, you know, and what is that parent company that owns that particular brand doing behind closed doors you know it's a really complex situation but we need to be really aware vigilant and decide where we want to go with all of this perfect i think that's yeah really astute point so just to wrap up the conversation the final question i want to ask is what is the kind of change that you wish for if you had a call for action how would your ideal dance floor look and how would we achieve this i think the time right now is for education, 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 and that education needs to happen within those structures that we support, like slabs, because I think to educate oneself centers you and it also helps you to move forward in a progressive way. And as we've noticed with what is happening around us uh, with the whole issue of racism, I have been very shocked to hear people saying that they have not even read about these issues that are over 400 to some, you know, years old. And so for me, I think 
It is extremely important right now that we educate ourselves, whether it be, you know, book clubs or whatever, but that education needs to happen and really quickly. How do I want to see the dance floor look like? I want people like me behind the decks and in front of the decks dancing. And I want venue owners to actually, again, do the work in ensuring that they reach out and make, it's not a matter of if, they need to do the work and do the call out to say, hey, those people that we've neglected for so long, we are committing ourselves and we opening our door and saying, you are welcome. That step needs to come from those that have denied people those spaces for so long. I agree. I would like for gentrification to be a topic that is addressed more. And I would like for us to de-gentrify our own minds because I think that gentrification just isn't about the co-option of space. It's not just about the co-option of venues or the co-option of housings. It's about the co-option of thoughts. It's about the co-option of ideas. And so many in our generation believe that we have to have our ideas be commercialized or we have to have our ideas be platformed in certain spaces or in certain contexts for them to be seen as valid. But the thing is, change and empowerment, they're never going to be nice, fine collaborations or conversations that happen with invoices being sent. They're going to be messy, uncomfortable, sticky situations filled with so much conflict. And so for me, that change which I wish for is for us to actually be familiar with that conflict and to be familiar with feeling insecure and be familiar with feeling uncomfortable. Because once we can start to feel uncomfortable and be okay with feeling uncomfortable, then we can really start to change stuff. Yeah, as I said, going back to what I said, but the, the, the duty of doing all this work of the change should not only fall on us. We are exhausted. We are tired. We've been fighting for so long it's time that other people step in. Yeah, I think it's true what you're saying. Like, I agree, like open conversation, open, honest conversation, even check your girlfriend at, at a time about some stuff. I kind of have like a whole kind of like open door conversation with like my houses, you know, if someone puts something in the group chat, which is like, you know, I want to do this to support Black Lives Matter, for example and people don't agree with it, I feel like open conversation is like the best because everyone should have a say. And I feel like also promoters, DJs, everyone that works in like music, we don't talk enough. We're very much like, we might be in the same lineup, but we're not going to talk about fees. And I feel a lot that we don't talk to each other enough and have these like conversations. I think we definitely have to have these conversations. What my floor looks like, I think the only thing for me is conversation. I like having discussions like this. I like having discussions that get heated, that make me uncomfortable, that I might say something and people disagree and they say it from their side and I, I get it or I might not get it. Like, I like that and I want more of that to happen within, like, the industry as a whole. Also, I'm tired of also talking at the same time. You know, see at the table, like... Whatever venue this is, it needs to have people who understand the party or the event that we want to do to help us. And what will it look like? For me, how it's looked like so far is how I can continue. I want my floor to look as not mixed as possible of people. I want to have a mixture of people, but I want a common respect for the floor, a common respect 
for my house. As I said, I've always seen my parties and my balls and everything I've done as my home. Like, if I would put a ball in my house, I would put a party in my house. Like, respect it like you would at someone's house party and all their walls are white. Respect it with the same energy. And that's kind of what I want to see more within nightlife, you know. I feel it needs more of a wholesome, respective space more now than ever, I think. In general, I think I wish everyone who's taking part in this scene to be a little bit more careful with your choice. When you're when you're going to a party, when you're going to an event, just know who you're paying and what you are supporting by attending because it's great to have like conversations between us, like promoters and booking agents, etc. But at the end of the day, it's the audience's, you know, money that runs everything. And I feel like through Corona pandemic, also with the whole Black Lives Matter movement, I realized that a lot of the things that, a lot of the problems that we're seeing is that um, the music, not, not just music, but culture and art has been so detached from where it originally was. It just became a business. It just became a commodity. And it just became something to be consumed. And if you have the money, you can just buy it and enjoy it. And you don't have to, you know, you just throw it away when you get bored of it. But to sustain this culture or art, it's not the right way to... Um, you're not really supporting it by just consuming. In general, I think people need to have stronger sense of participation and, yeah, just be a little bit more careful, thoughtful of your each action. And it's not just about, you know, diversity in the scene, but also with, like, climate change. Just take a moment and think of what you're purchasing. But also just going beyond just the dance floor. In order for us to see the change that we, which actually will benefit us a great deal and will revive what has become a dying club scene, we need to see women taking on the role of a club booker or programmer. We need to see a lot more change structurally and not just on the surface, you know, we, yes, it's, we want more black DJs or Asian DJs playing, but we also want a lot more diversity within decision making. And this is what is lacking right now, you know. And uh, also, why is it that clubs are so conservative? Are we not meant to be in the creative fields? Why are we only listening to a certain kind of music and not the others when there's a whole world out there making creative and exciting things? Why is it that we are stuck in this one dimension? Why is it that we're not watching movies about the culture and where these things are coming from? Why is a club space so static? And it has been for a very long time. Can I actually add something? I recently wrote an article, a feature for RA, and about alternative ways of 
yeah, doing things <laughs> uh, in music. And I wrote about this band in Tokyo who put on free festival, like admission-free event. So anyone is welcome. And they collect donations. And last year they did free admission and free food. So they provided free meals for people who came to the festival. And there were maybe two or 3,000 people. And they basically yeah, said, there's something wrong with this industry. And we're going to try a different way and see if it works. And if there are enough people to support what we do. And it turned out they were. And they didn't lose money. I mean, of course, it was a lot of work for them to put this on. But there were you know, farmers who, who supplied food and restaurant people who cooked the food and all these volunteers and, yeah, donations supported their vision of their event, which was mind-blowing to me. Like, I never thought about that. Like, I never... I mean, of course, there are free events, but I never thought it's, it's really possible to put on a f completely free festival and serve free food. Yeah, that's amazing. But yeah. on the flip side of that, I feel like <laughs> it's really uncomfortable to have to create these spaces and provide the stuff for free off our own backs when there's so much money ebbing and flowing around us in the cities and the spaces that we're doing it in. We should be having access to that money. Like, it's like, I remember seeing this article which was about how this like nine, 10 year old girl crowdfunded her, her dad's cancer treatment in the US. And, and it was this cute story about how she had crowdfunded. And I'm there like, am I the only one who thinks that this is insane, that there isn't free healthcare? And this person had to literally get money from her community to support her father, when really it's the medical, like industrial complex, which should be paying for it in the first place. So I get that's amazing. Just like the idea of block parties, like block parties are amazing to bring communities together. Honestly, if there were more, if there was more capacity for there to be block parties in a city like London, for example, then gentrification wouldn't happen so easily as well. Like if Notting Hill Carnival could happen more regularly, for example, or more unrestrictively, then gentrification would be tackled in a way. But in a way, I wouldn't say it's a solution, but. I feel like there are, like, there's a lot, I think, in my area. I grew up in Peckham, in London, and there is a lot of, like, block party, per se. Like, a lot of the community, like, get together and make food. And, like, if there's an event, they're, like, people will, like, cook and stuff like this. And it can be done. 2,000 people, I'm gagging, because that's a lot. And I really want to know what the food really looked like. Like, what was it kind of thing? I'm hungry. <laughs> um, that would have sold me to come to the festival. And yeah, I think like it does exist. I think it does need to exist more for more communities to like build. But also, yeah, like you're completely right. Like, run me my coin. I mean, look at the UK. The taxpayer has been paying until 2015 uh, the slave owners for compensating them for not owning slaves anymore. This, the madness. It's mad. But they roll out money for other stuff, but then we have to like be like, oh, let's raise money for the NHS. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, okay, what? I think that that's a perfect place to wrap it up is by all of us just saying, like, run me my money. That's it, period. <laughs> Give me the coins. Run it. Sprint it. <laughs> so we're going to be wrapping it up. It's been so amazing to have you all here. We're actually going to have JJ Song as the outro. Miss Corona Cunt. 
Does she want to give us a little explanation as to what this is? Surprising that Corona can't, and I've avoided swearing this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, because, uh, so this was like the first thing I like produced. Um, I haven't done music for a while, but I've been learning for like the last three months with a teacher in the UK from Hub 16. I have to shout out them because they're amazing, Samantha Nelson. And this was like the first thing that kind of made me with Corona, just made me like sit down and make something and like be happy with it and i think it's just a song that was like ridiculous i think i heard the remixes and just like i need to make something like this so yeah it's just something i just made super proud of amazing looking forward to hearing it let's go it's a bit loud <laughs> not mixed out it's not mixed out 